<clears throat> Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Berlin. How's it going? Oh, fine. I'm 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 just fighting a thing. I'm fighting a, an interior thing. Oh no! The, those sometimes those are the most <laughs> difficult things to fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, no, you're getting ill. Well, you know, I haven't uh, I haven't been getting ill lately, and I'm uh, I'm gonna stick with that. You know, I have a good friend that that uh, that claims that she never gets sick, and uh, and when I have personally witnessed her being sick, she denies that she's sick, and that's such a that's such a flip from most people, or I don't know, from a lot of people who are always getting sick when they're not. She never gets sick when she is, and I've started to kind of adopt that mentality. I'm not sick. I don't get sick. I'm, I'm actually pretty interested in that because I, I have met people like this, and I it's hard to tell whether it works or not. It's one of those things like you know scaring the alligators away. But mm-hmm. like I've met people who seem they they are so fixed in their insistence that they aren't sick and don't get sick. Yeah, that they sometimes seem to actually beat it back, and I, I wonder if that works. I or, wonder or, that or, too. Or, or, and I'm, okay, I'm, what about the corollary? The corollary is where you constantly think you're getting sick and then you do get sick. Now I believe that can be a thing. Oh, that happened. That used to happen to me all the time. You remember when I would come on this program, I'd be sick all the time. You used to be sick all but, the time. But uh, I was sick all the time, and now I'm chasing the alligator away. Is what uh, yep. is what we're basically saying. So, mm-hmm. so that's happening. I feel uh, I feel some sensations, which are not sickness sensations, but are just simply uh, my body telling me that I'm alive, and that uh, foreign agents are uh, lurking. They're lurking around the the uh, the dark corners of the city of my lungs and nose, hmm. and I'm not going to allow them. I'm gonna. It's basically going to be a um, a counter insurgency on the part of my white blood cells and other other things that I don't understand. <sighs> so it's a counter insurgency against against um, the attack on your dark city. That's right. Attack on the dark. Okay. City. Well. Hmm. We haven't talked about this in a while, but there, there's always, I think we're leave, I feel like we've left the door open to the idea that, yeah, first of all, let's take it as red. There's probably other stuff out there in the universe, Yeah. right? There are some people who say, well, obviously there's nothing else out there in the universe or they already would be here. I, I don't have the logical skills to say whether that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I, I think we can also probably agree that if there are people coming here, they're people. Listen to me. <laughs> Right, people. Sure, people. Right. Why this is the problem? Stop being being so uh, sapien centric, normative. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, It's like Star Trek. You know, you look a regular person, but then they put some makeup on you. I mean, that's (laughs) a very limited and some weird ears. (laughs) Exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we can agree that you would probably be the emissary. That seems clear. So, what if it's not somebody in a shiny lame cape and a green face? What if? What if you are being reached? What if your dark city is being contacted? by oh. these very attackers that you now seek to repel. Uh-huh. So I'm saying, what if, I'm, I'm not saying you should do this, you probably be very busy right now, but like, what if you opened yourself to the idea there could be some kind of uh, beatific experience happening here that's not about illness. It reads as illness because, you know, you've never been an emissary as far as we know I see. before. What if they're, they're out there, they're knocking on the door, they say, hey, John, can we come in? Yeah, sure. And they're saying, this is how we make contact. This is how we, uh, we want to commune with you and right now your body is having a you know some kind of fairly profound reaction but it's just that your body doesn't know how to interpret uh interstellar 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it was, what if it's a form of benign galactic toxoplasmosis, where first they need to plant, they need to plant some ideas, to let you, you know, sit around with those ideas for six weeks before they go to the next stage. Sure, sure, sure. Take a look at the star man playing with his ding dong. Wrong song, and yet these lyrics work. And then I go out and twerk. Oh. I feel like that is... <laughs> that's my uh, almost... That's maybe my favorite David Bowie song. Yeah, and I feel like it may be a star man playing with his ding dong. <laughs> I, <laughs> what I want... <laughs> what so I the actual, want... Just like so the actual lyric for later on. Take a look at the star man oh, playing with his ding dong. Oh, man, look at that ding dong go. It's a funicular show. Um, is there life in John? Mind and in his nasal cavity. Uh, what I want is a guarantee. What I want. No more attacks <laughs> on my father's life. No. Have, you, have you been watching it? No. Do you know I don't about it? Watch, I don't want to watch the weird one. Oh, yeah. I don't sure, want to watch, sure. watch the weird one, no, especially no. not the, the later weird one. It's only seven hours long, John. It's seven hours long, and it didn't... And it involves a conspiracy to kill the Pope, and I don't want to hear it. No, no. No, no, no. They don't include that one. It's seven no, oh, hours of just right? the first two movies, yeah. But well, I take your point. Seven, I take your point. Uh, yeah, what, I don't, I don't want to see I don't want to see Robert De Niro appear halfway through a film. Yeah. Or yeah. at the beginning of a film. What am I trying to say? I don't even understand it. You know, sure that's you the first one I saw. Your first concern? You don't want Mike coming out of that bathroom with his uh, dick in his hand. That's right. The first one I saw in 1977 or whatever, they sat me down in front of the television. The same way in fifth grade, they handed me Tale of Two Cities and said, you're a smart kid. Here, read Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, I don't, uh, okay. And then and it was one of the, it was like a, it was like they, it was like a dare, right? It was like, oh, you're a smart kid. Here, go for it. Read Tale of Two Cities. And I was like, I don't, sure, I've never heard of the French Revolution, but yes, all right, I can do this. And I and I did it like uh, like like you would say here, kid, climb the climb this ladder. You did it. It was like eating your peas. You did the whole thing. I did the whole thing, but I had I had no actual comprehension of what I was doing. But when they asked me about, it, I'm talking about the people in the schools now. Yeah. When they when they required that I write a book report about it because because they didn't because obviously I wasn't going to read Watership Down I, uh, with the rest of the class, right? I uh, I'd read it already. It's too sad. So they were like, "Oh, you know, here's this is what we this is the honors program. Read Moby Dick." And I did those oh, things. I did those things and then I was required to to report to them, report to adults who who my uh, even at the time I thought had not read those books. Uh and I didn't know what I had read, but I gave a good, you know, I gave a good game. But the problem was that that because it was a dare, I couldn't say that I didn't get them. Because then the adults would be disappointed in me, and then I wouldn't be a genius. So it's the, I was like, it's the yeah. worst of times and the worst of times. That's right. You know, so, so I, you can't win. It's a can't win. Uh, can't is it win. Dickens who wrote that? Uh, yeah, uh, Dickens wrote Tale of Two Cities, and then he also wrote uh, Moby Dick. It's a, Dick. It's it, mm-hmm. it all it all tells the same story. Basically, uh, a white whale uh, fights a revolution mm-hmm. against uh, uh, like a, uh, some kind of sun king. Right, and that was later turned into uh, the uh, the play Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. That's right, exactly. Les Miserables, and and then there are helicopters that come down, and there's some kind of uh, Vietnam uh, uh, like allegory where he he goes up a river. So it's it's the Sun King <laughs> goes up a river, finds a white whale. Yep. 
uh, battles with himself. Chases him for the rest of his life. Whales like you can never change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in any case, the first time I saw The Godfather, I was, I was, I was satted down in front of a television, an enormous television that also had a record player in it. Mm. And people said, this is an important film, and you need to watch it. And then they left, right? They didn't want to watch it. They went upstairs and oh, did whatever. Oh, that's that's a tip you off, yeah. Yeah, and they're like, "This is for you now. You, uh, we are, we are, we are punching your card. We are giving you an adult ID, and it involves watching The Godfather." So I sat in front of it again, uncomprehending, uh, wanting to watch Happy Days, wanting to be a normal kid, forced to watch this uh, this long, confusing, slow moving. Uh, film where they had edited out all the parts where people died or all the all the blood and guts mm-hmm. so it was just what is this montage with the with the baptism of the baby and then people walking in and out of barber shops yeah what's that <laughs> emergency <laughs> haircuts i don't get i don't get this at all uh all I know and, is i'm not going to use revolving doors anymore so i <laughs> That's right. I'm now. I'm never going to come down the steps of a federal courthouse. Every time I, uh, every time I get, every time, uh oh, somebody's writing a ticket. And I'm getting out of here. Get out. Uh, so uh, yeah, so I was miserable, and then later, later on, I, I, I don't, I don't even remember how I reintroduced myself to it, but maybe it was that I got tired of middle-aged men making references that I didn't understand. Yeah, and uh, you know, now of course I've seen it 25 times, but. Also, you know, movies movies used to be shorter. Uh, hmm. Interesting. I think The Deer Hunter disproves that. Well, but before the 1970s, I mean... Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's funny to think about. There's, there's so much that comes washing over me now that I, I still love movies, and uh, I have a kid, and I like watching movies, but, like, there's, there's so much to think about where, like... Uh, and I, actually, my kid was asking me about... She was looking at one of my X-Men posters yesterday and saying, what is the comics code? How how could she miss your X-Men posters, right? I have f- five of them here in the office. And she's saying, what is the comics code? She's seen this on old comics. And I did the best I could with my meager understanding of it to say, well, you know, there was this uh, – before I was born, there was a controversy kind of built up out of almost nothing about how basically comic books were damaging kids. I couldn't tell her all the things that, you know, they were worried about. You know, there's the sexy things. But I said, like, mm-hmm. for example, uh, you couldn't have zombies in comic books anymore was one hmm. of the things. There's all hmm, kinds that's of things. The part of the comics code. Well, there's this book that came out. The name escapes me, but there's a, a book that came out in the mid '50s by this this uh, demagogue who basically was saying that comics are are destroying our children, and uh, and mainly I think going after sort of you know there was a time when war comics and especially crime comics were popular, but another yeah. huge genre was like the tales of the crypt, the EC comics, those wonderful sure. comics about you know gory stuff. You know I loved those. Those are fan. Those are those. First of all, they're beautiful. They still yeah. stand the test of time. They look fantastic. But you know, the comics code was a way of saying it was kind of like the PMRC in the eighties, where they said, look, either either you can let us do this and we'll just shut you down, or you can find some way to placate us by uh, you know patrolling yourselves. And so there was this, I'll try and find it uh, to send it to you later, but there was this, you know, crazy list of stuff you just couldn't do in comics anymore, including things like, I want to say like challenging authority. There were things oh. where like, you could, well, you couldn't do stuff like you couldn't, I think you weren't allowed to insult heads of state and things like that. There was all this crazy, one of those like omnibus bills kind of things. And it, you know, it's what made comics kind of lame for a while. And it wasn't until the seventies that that really got kind of brushed away. 
Do you remember? You know, now that I think about that, it seemed like whenever a president, or uh, you know, uh, exactly as you say, a head of state, or even a even like a head of business showed up in a comic, it was always it was always like sort of a weird hero that didn't that you wish would go away as fast as he could, like. Hey, it's President Reagan. Hello there, Superman. Usually, usually pretty clunky. I think there's an Avengers with David Letterman in it that was pretty weird. <laughs> I don't know if it was the Avengers, but there was definitely a con- well. Of course, famously, uh, you got Captain America who was always punching Hitler in the face. That was kind of yeah, cool. Yes, I, I guess I that one like, you could get yeah. a pass on. Punch Hitler in the face. I mean, and then uh, Quentin Tarantino really, really took that all the way. He reinterpreted uh, it with uh, Japanese girls with swords. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, to yeah, cut off uh, Hitler. But but the, the, uh, my uh, favorite. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, all no, I was no, going to no. say I, was the, you, the the bridge here is that there was a time where I guess it was believed that in certain kinds of media you had to create media that would be utterly inoffensive to anyone, including like a toddler. This is before the idea of like the rating system came along in movies, and so you know there would be you know double entendres and stuff like that. But you could go to a movie theater with your kid and see pretty much any movie. It might not be interesting to that child, but there would be nothing in it that was, you know, horrific. That wasn't until whatever, was it Midnight Cowboy was the first X-rated, famous X-rated film? The the rating system came along, I think, in the late 60s mm-hmm. with similar concerns, you know? Do you know? Do you know that my mom, now that you're saying this, my mom sat me down, again, right about the time of the, right about the time they were forcing me to read Moby Dick and watch The Godfather. She, sat, she was watching a film with me and she said, that right there is a code for them having sex. <laughs> like, leaned over and said that. And I was like, what? What? Huh? What? Like shoes on the floor or something? I had missed it. And it, what it was was, uh, you know, it was like fr- some From Here to Eternity movie where uh, they, they were kissing and then the, <sighs> the camera, camera turns away. camera panned away and there, was, there were waves washing on the beach, right? Or it was... or. You know, the, the camera panned away and it was a locomotive going into a tunnel or whatever it was. <laughs> and It was a man making a, a ring with his left hand and putting the <laughs> forefinger from his right hand into it and out of it repeatedly. <laughs> and, and, I, and as, a, you know, as an eight-year-old, I, I hadn't gotten it. I thought, that they were, I thought that they liked each other very much and were kissing. And then, it, then we were segueing to another scene. And my mom was like, that's a code for having sex. And... I was embarrassed, of course, because whenever anybody talked about sex, it was embarrassing. Yes. But I was curious about it, right? Like, what is this, what is this code? It's a, and so somehow we, we got into a conversation about it, and I think it was that she probably brought it up again and said, look, in movies, uh, when people are having sex, they can't make an overt reference to it, so there are all these ways. Right? This is your, your 9, 10, 11 at this point? How old? Uh, I'd say eight. Oh my! <laughs> and uh, and so then I was I was curious about every aspect of that. People having sex, first of all, and then you know, and she was like, they can't show tongue kissing. Do you ever notice that? They go in and they they're very passionately kissing, but it's kind of like it's kind of like that scene. Uh, it's kind of like some scene from Animal House where the guy puts his hand up over her mouth and then starts passionately kissing the back of his hand. Yeah. Um, like they, passionate kisses are 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 still very chaste and ch- chaste, and she uh, she was like that's not how people actually kiss, 
uh, when they're about to make love, that is fake. Because, you're, eight, you're eight at this point. Yeah, because that's uh, that is in the movies, and I'm like, how do people actually kiss? And she's like, well, they slobber all over each other, their tongues, and it's and their and snot is coming out of their nose. It's oh, really horrific. My God. And I was like, okay, all right, okay, because you know, my mom, a, my parents weren't married anymore, and b, uh, they both kept their affection for their friends, if you will completely out of public eye right if my mom was kissing someone and i walked in the room the kissing stopped and everyone you know everyone clasped their hands in their laps and said so anyway what were we talking about moby dick mm-hmm. and so i had never i didn't really see it you know it was the 70s people were slobbering over each other big big ways but i didn't i didn't have a lot of firsthand exposure to it so i was like Ugh, what are they what people do what now a train goes into a tunnel? Yeah. I mean, I understood the the the, uh, the the mathematics of sex, but I think those codes really did a job on us. It's like we never see dead bodies. I mean, in movies we do, but we never see them in person. Right. Um, yeah, I, I've been, uh, last few months, I guess, I've been really struggling with this, uh, with my kid, because I wish she had a chance to to be interviewed about her understanding of these things because I think it'll be extremely interesting. Very, very different from the understanding of an eight year old in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. I bet it's different in every era. What you I'm, think? I'm, I'm willing to conduct those interviews if you want to fund. The I study. would fund that. Yeah, I, I would. Yeah, maybe I get a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to help <laughs> mm-hmm. out. But you know, but you know, you think about again. Think think about uh, in the eighties when, or for that matter, think about the seventies. Think about how much. It's basically all I do. I know, I know. But think about how much like straight up murder was on TV a lot oh, of the yeah, time. Oh yeah, right. There Beretta was a lot Kojak. of Co- yeah, Co- Kojak, Chicago, Bang Bang. You start thinking a lot about like all there was. There was so much just people getting killed on TV, and so you know the conventional wisdom over the years became that you know Europeans think think it's so weird that we have so much murder on TV and so little like genuine like affectionate sex. And then kind of vice versa. So we get one of those British imports where there's no shooting but boobies, and it's like, you know, you know, hail Britannia. Sure. But carry on, Benny Hill. But uh the reason I say that is that uh, I don't want to say too much here, but you know, my but for example, like there are times when you need a bridge to explain something. Uh, about what's going on. And in the past, like, we... mean where the camera p- pans away and... And, and shows a, a train uh, tunnel and a man doing this <laughs> with his finger. No, it's a picture of a bridge. Cam- camera pans away and it's like, oh, this is this is a real segue. It's, so the there's first, actually the, a bridge. The first time... That's actually, that's part of the movie, honey. The, the first time I, I ever said this, I already knew I was going down a path that I would have to walk back at some point. But, uh, but the, the term became kissing. Like, okay, so that's, you know, and that could be a way of explaining that, well, yeah, here's what it means to be gay. What it means to be gay is that you like kissing people that are the same gender as you. And, like, she's redonkulously open-minded about that. Like, it's really cool. Like, she thinks it's really weird that you're not allowed to do what you want with who you want. But, you know, again, kissing. So, but at some point, at some point soon, that's going to start really breaking down mm-hmm. as the way of explaining this this as a shorthand a heuristic for this whole class of things that are actually much beyond kissing mm-hmm. right so like <laughs> yeah and so like we'll be watching something that's a little bit you know peachy peachy 13 and uh and it uh it really pushes the bounds of my analogy or mm-hmm. my metonymy i guess for explaining what's happening 
So I'm not looking forward to the day where I I'm not worried so much about having to explain the actual real world mechanics, but like we're gonna have to go rewatch a lot of things and go. Oh, that really wasn't about kissing. Was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna start. I'm gonna start referring to sex as beyond kissing, uh, and I think that that's gonna actually improve my life in a lot of ways. Just be like, are you? Uh, how are we ready? I I, to go I feel like kissing? we're we're gonna. T- I feel like we're at a pretty terrible time for the ratings, the MPAA rating system at this point, because, um, see, I wasn't talking about movies anymore. I was just talking about in my personal life. Oh no, I think it's a terrific idea. Would you like to go beyond kissing with me? (laughs) Or just, or just, yes. And you start just just, kissing the back of your hand and they're like, I should go. (laughs) What I'm doing is going back throughout my entire life and inserting beyond kissing into every instance where I've used the word sex. (laughs) And I, I like my life better now, mm-hmm. retroactively. And I'm I would just, love to have some Beyond Kissing with you. That is how I'm going to remember my life. I would like to go back for a second into yes. this podcast and comment that earlier, uh, just a few moments ago, you and I both said, you go ahead, simultaneously. Yeah. And I don't think that's ever happened before. I think that was the first time. It's happened probably three times. No, no, no. Really? You go ahead? I try not ahead. to interrupt you. I'm an interrupter by nature, and I try not to do that on this show. But I, But I feel like... I feel like it's the first time we both ever said it. You go oh. at the same time. You go ahead. No, you go ahead. But we didn't. But it, it was simultaneous. Yeah. You go ahead. We both wanted the other to go ahead, and if then we I, got if, jammed up in a in a revolving door. If I actually, oh boy, and then somebody shot us both. Uh, I still think about that every time I go through my my daughter. Of course, she's a child. She loves a revolving door. I don't like going through a revolving door. <laughs> I'm waiting for somebody to lock it up, and then uh, Willie Chichi, uh, you know, gives it to me. You this know is, but but you're screwing up the cli- climate control. In all these hotels and office buildings, you open that side door and the whole climate of the building goes racing out like a like Ghostbusters. Yeah. All it's just 70 different climates all running out with hot dogs in their mouths and then you are uh you fucked it all up whereas if you go through the revolving door it's just one little climate. One little climate. Mm-hmm. Do you do you use a revolving door that seems antithetical to a lot of your training? The the only time I actually use a revolving door is if somebody's going through ahead of me uh, that I know, and then as the revolving door is halfway through, I stick my foot in it, and then it stops, and the person <laughs> slams into the glass, and it's one of my favorite <laughs> gags. And I do, it all the, I do it all the time, and a lot of my friends know I'm going to do it, but then they forget because they get excited about going through a revolving door. Sure. And everybody does. They're, they see it coming, and they're like, here we go. And then I jam my foot in it, and they slam into the glass, and it's just like, I love it over and over and over. That gag works. Do you renounce Satan? <laughs> I renounce Satan. Pow! And a lot of the times I'll slam the revolving door into them and then I'll go around and go into the go in through the through It's the fun to have you as door. a friend. There's always a little surprise around every corner. That's right. That is the kind see, that's the kind of thing. That's why people call me an asshole. Yeah. But it doesn't really it nothing about that is bad. You know, you know they'll they'll survive that. They didn't do anything wrong. It's no. you know, it's me. It's on. It's on me. But it's also it's small, yeah. and it's just putting a little bit of joy into everybody's life. I think. Yeah, that's so nice of you to do that. Yeah, even the guy that's dressed like a beef eater who's standing outside hailing cabs for you, mm-hmm. he uh, he laughs too. We all laugh. Yeah, he's seen it all. Whew, that guy's seen it all. <clears throat> anyway, sorry I interrupted he's, you. He's 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 working. Mm-hmm. Right next to a giant poster of himself. Can you imagine that? He's, his idea of getting dressed for work is so different than my idea of getting dressed for work. Uh-huh. Can you imagine dressed, if we had to dress as beef eaters every day? He's dressed like a Revolutionary War uh, Minuteman, 
and uh, and he's helping Kevin Costner into uh, into a little bed and breakfast. Mm-hmm. But he's going to remember. He's going to remember his face, and he's going to get walked around the Pentagon uh, trying to see him. And Kevin Costner is going to be hiding in bathrooms. It's this is part of it's part of the job. Huh? Huh? <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Any, ratings are complicated. It's complicated stuff. You know what's complicated? Hmm. What's that? I, I hate to segue. I hate to. I no hate segue. I also want. I want to come back to uh, Moby Dick at some point. But go ahead. Okay. I hate to pan across a bridge. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> I have two dongles now. Oh no! Two dongles. I have two dongles. I used to have. I used to have one key, if you recall. Once upon a time, I had one key. Mm-hmm. My life was simple. Yeah. And then I had more keys, and then more, and then more, and then I got a dongle. Okay. I didn't want a dongle. Screwed up my whole key ring. Now I've got two dongles. This is the, this is the direction we're going. Okay. One day I'm going to have a ring of dongles, no keys. A dongle, a dongle, is it one of those that gives you a passcode to get into something kind of thing? Or is it like a giant car key? No, no, no. Well, so there are some car keys. Like if you drive a Nissan Leaf or something, you have a, you have a dongle in your pocket. You, you never have a small to... generator on it. Is that what it is? I think so. There's no it, need for the keys to be that big, really. You never have to put it in the car, though. You just sit in the car. It knows you're there. It knows your key is in the car, and it starts the car. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? That's the, the, this is the future. Yes. It, because the thing is, even though after 40 years of computers, 40 years of personal computers, we act, my mom said this to me the other day. I know that she's becoming more and more a, a, a character on this podcast. Finally. And she objects to it uh, because she feels like I am misrep- misrepresenting her. If I am misrepresenting her, it is only that I'm not describing how actually tough she is. But I was sitting on the couch. Your mom is impossibly tough. I was reading some Scientific American or something, and she walks in and she says, Did you know that computers have not increased productivity one iota? And I looked up and I was like, huh? And she said, it's true. It takes. Did you know that? Uh, no. <laughs> and she said, it takes just as long to do everything now as it did in 1965. The only thing that computers have done is increase productivity in things that are not important that only exist to be computer things. And so there was no compare. We can't compare to how long it took in 1965 because we didn't have Photoshop then. Mm-hmm. But in terms of like paying your checkbook or some business practice, she was like, I was in, I was in, I was doing computers in business for 30 years, and at no point along the way did it ever increase productivity one iota, and it still hasn't. And I was like, uh, uh, and I was thinking and thinking about, about uh, processes and realizing that I could not refute what she said with anything. And I was like, oh, oh dear. And she was like, she, she wasn't referring directly to my dongle, which performs exactly what you know the function of a key uh except it except it's awkward it's more awkward than a key i'm i'm so lost right now w- mm. what does the dongle do it is a key mm. except you instead of putting it in a lock you touch it to a pad they get a fob it's a fob that's right i'm sorry a, a dongle and a fob are the same if somebody yeah, one of them wears fancier hats if somebody can tell me the difference between a dongle and a fob Mm-hmm. First of all, it will be someone who listens to this. I think program. a fob. Yeah, I want to think of a fob. I think of uh, like a near field communication kind of thing, where it's like you know what it is. It's like uh, what's his name, a uh, detective Yakamoto, 
What was his name? Oh yeah. Well, let's let's just yeah, let's just call him Detective Yakamoto. <laughs> Detective uh, Yakamoto doing his little disco dance to make the door open, right? That's right. He he, t- he reaches up, touches it with his butt, and some card in his wallet says, you know, but instead of just instead of maintaining his police-like dignity <laughs> and sticking a key into a into a keyhole, mm-hmm. he takes a three-pointer with <laughs> three-pointer with his ass. That's right. Huzzah, banana, wow. And, you know, yeah, instead of putting a, a, instead of a locomotive going into a train tunnel, now we have some sort of like uh, uh, all that jazz moment. Mm-hmm. Arigato. <laughs> and uh, and then we're walking past a recumbent bicycle. Yep. And what and the recumbent bicycle is a classic example. It, I, I'm not well. I'm, I think he's a map right now. I'm <laughs> so, so confused. So what she was trying to tell me is that <laughs> that throughout her entire career in computers, you know, they they would publish computer computer talk in magazines probably called computer talk where they would where they would editorialize and say still this is 1979 or something still after all this investment in computers we have not improved productivity one bit or rather one iota and uh, that was true all the way through 1990 how, how, how many iotas are in a bit how many iotas can dance on the head of a pin <laughs> How many iotas can dance inside of uh, a, a police evidence? I think room? you got six iotas in a moment. <laughs> there's there's twelve moments in a bit, uh-huh. and then you got like seventy five bits in a megabyte. Right. It's a, like base base ten twenty four. Basically that, and you know, and then uh, Robert's Rules of Order comes into effect. A point of personal <laughs> privilege. Uh, but I said to her, if uh, the, these magazines were reporting this stuff. Uh, why didn't the general population uh, rebel or say what's going on with these things? And she said, at that time, uh, unlike now, nobody read computer magazines except computer people. And computer people at the time were unwilling to, were un- unwilling to look critically at computers because it was, their, it, was, it was their happy place. But we would read these things and go, wow, it hasn't improved productivity one bit. Well, it certainly will begin to do so right now, soon. And then it never did. And, you know, she's talking about what I like to talk about all the time, which is that we built the Saturn V rocket using pipe benders and slide rules. And uh, we have yet to best it. You know, we keep, we keep building rockets and they keep exploding on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Right. This is no, the, sli- the slide rule argument. Or, no, not even, well, I don't know. I wouldn't call it the slide rule argument. I would call it the balance your checkbook argument. Which is that at the end of the month, you sit down with your check register and you balance it with a pen as opposed to booting up your check balancing software and looking at all the pie charts that it generates. But it takes the same amount of time and it has the same effect. Mm, can I counter? Mm, okay. Yes, okay. All right. Go ahead. I'll, just, I'll just offer this quote from Upton Sinclair that I'm always misquoting and I want to get it right. <laughs> it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. That's kind of what you're describing, right? Uh, in some ways, if you're if you're a computer jockey, you're not going to look for instances where the computer stuff is is not the best way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that. I, but would you describe that as a counter or as a? Uh, oh no, I'm just I'm just doing that to kind of calm me down a little. Here's my counter. My my, my counter <laughs> is that it depends on what you're talking about being productive about because mm. the the massive change we see little changes in how our life works as people who are on desktop and laptop and mobile computers, the thing that's, that's not in our face every day in that same way is that we're allowed to be productive or not productive about very different kinds of work because in a way I will very loosely describe as behind the scenes, 
there's a lot of stuff being done by machines and computers that are actually making things much more efficient. I mean, but think I, about I, something like agriculture. Agriculture, like what you're able to do with agriculture is, it, you know, at scale is so huge now that that infrastructure has developed beyond like, you know, being able to just get things locally or whatever. But, but I feel like, I mean, certainly at the level of crunching uh, numbers, like crunching prime numbers, um, computers are doing a, allowing us to do that at a much larger scale. And that is producing something that, that there are a lot of people are going to, a lot of people are going to describe the tangible effect of that uh-huh. uh, in terms of, for instance, like crypt, cryptology. Uh, but that encryption is all now newly necessary because computers. Oh, it's creating new needs for new technology. That's right. The, mm-hmm. the, the, the technology is fulfilling the need, which is it's like my dad when I took his car away and he was like, I need my car. And I said, why? And he said, to go to the mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so a lot of that stuff is just like I think that mostly mo- most of the a- agriculture productivity is a result of. Uh, Monsanto, you know, like uh, gene manipulation, and it's produced a monoculture. So we have, so it isn't actually an improvement. It's just a, it is a streamlining of a thing that we that that we didn't want. Right? Well, I think it's different. If I could say, I think it's different to argue whether it's an improvement rather than uh, in the in the aggregate. Does all of that make the world better? I don't know. What all I'm trying to say is that, like, it seems like in the inexorable march of technology, the thing that is fairly consistent is that as soon as it's less expensive and more reliable to have a machine do something, uh, the mach- a machine will do that, which then necessarily changes the nature of what an actual person does. And so you can even look at the last 30, 40 years and how there was a time when you needed people who did things called word processing or data entry. That was a kind of job. And now there are machines that do that kind of stuff better, faster, more efficiently and less costly. So even though that was considered a technology job 30 years ago, it's not anymore because now that job is being done by the technology itself. So that necessarily changes what it is that we're doing on our our computers. Yes, it does. But what what I'm saying is that that behind word processing, behind uh, the machine taking over word processing, processing those are just those are just ways of processing what ult- what we formerly did with uh, with typewriters on um, you know on uh, what is that stuff called uh, where you type into a piece of black paper and it makes three copies. Oh, carbon uh, copies. Carbon copies. Oh yeah. Um, but ultimately, all that technology, including the typewriters and the carbon copies, is meant to process your insurance claim. You know, like the, all, all of that is, is ways of doing things which have, which have more or less remained constant. Process your insurance claim, f- fill out your mortgage documents, and that ultimately the, the, the end result, the processing of the insurance, the filling out the mortgage documents, still takes as much time as it once did when it was done in longhand, it just now involves a lot more people and a lot more process and a lot more layers of technology. But the, but the, but the actual stuff that's getting done hasn't changed really mm-hmm. and takes just as long. And I know that right now it, the, the, the real question is how many John Syracuse's are dancing on the head of a pin trying to refute this argument yelling at his TV screen. Mm-hmm. But in but but I believe because and, and the ultimate proof in the 
of it is the fact that we have not, not only have we not reduced the 40 hour work week to 20 hours, but we have increased the 40 hour work week to 60 hours. And we have a lot more people working longer and we haven't, we have not accomplished a, a world in which machines are doing our work. We've just added multiple, multiple layers of, you know, of, of action and it still takes, I mean, I don't know when the last time you filled out mortgage papers were. Oh God, when haven't I? <laughs> but it's, it's like, I feel like, I feel like when you, when you got a mortgage in 1920, it took less time. Hmm. So anyway, that's, so I, is it, I'm going to get kind so many, I'm going to get so many angry letters, but well, yeah, you probably should, but, <laughs> but I, um, I don't, so you're, but you're really kind of talking about quality of life in some ways. Well, I'm, I'm talking about why, why do we have computers and machines and what is their actual purpose? And what we keep doing is applying them to things, applying them to, to, with the idea that we are streamlining our processes so that we can have all this extra free time to do, to make art and, and sit on the beach. And the computers have yet to prove that they can do those things actually better. I mean, you can, you can, you can buy a home uh, tax filling out computer program and you can input all your data into it and you can learn how to use it and herp a derp a derp but at the end of the day it takes just as long to do your taxes as it did in 1950 and so why have you put in why have you bothered yeah okay all right um and and uh, at the other end yes computers are processing prime numbers and and sequencing genomes and those do have an effect on science and they are pushing the envelope forward but and but we don't reserve computers just to do that work we we spend most of our energy and most of our time trying to apply computers to like newspaper layouts and doing it on the computer you, you you're you're um you're bamboozled into thinking that it's easier and better and faster and and so forth but it actually it just takes as much time as when we used to put stickum glue down on a on a mm. piece of graph paper. Mm. Mm. And the end result is questionably better. Mm. Uh, mm. You know, all the time we talk about kerning, kerning, kerning. <laughs> and, you know, and we used to do that by hand, but it was it was better. It was prettier and it was closer to the closer to the truth of it. Really? It's never been easier to email you about this. <laughs> Technology right. has made it so easy for people right. to email you about this. Oh, they're going to. I'm going to get so many angry emails from people uh, who are barely on the spectrum. Oh, dear. Um, okay, so let me ask you this. Uh, is there a time, an era, where you feel like it was in the sweet spot? For like, on the one hand, it's nice that food doesn't make us sick anymore, on the other hand, we don't want devices in our house listening to us to create ads uh, that are appropriate. Somewhere in between, where do you think the, the sweet spot was for where you think technology was put to good use but not too much good news? Well, I want to go back to, the, to your claim that food formerly made us sick and now computers have made it so that food doesn't make us sick. It's not computers. It's technology. This is the problem. Is like In a world where we think all technology is about new apps, the interest in con the problem is that so much of the reporting about what we now call technology – is really about 
consumer-facing devices. So it's easy to make a straw man about technology when you talk about Samsung Samsung having a refrigerator with a large screen on it. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, well, okay, yeah, I get that silly. But a couple things is, that, first of all, there's all kinds of technology happening behind the scenes to make life easier and safe and reliable and less costly. But then on the other hand, I also, I've learned to become reluctant about drawing too many conclusions about a future that I can't understand. Where something that right now seems like an inconvenience or a silly thing to me, within five years might be something that's that's a pretty big deal that I'm really you know glad is there. Yeah, but I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the now. And what my mom is saying now is the beginning of the future. That's that's how it works. Well, I know. And my mom's my mom is saying that that has been the conversation since 1965. That in five years we're going to have a paperless office. In five years you're not going to have to do your taxes. In five years, we're going to be able to, you know, she said, the amazing thing was in 1965, they said in five years, there won't be computer programmers because all that will be automated. Right. And then in 1970, they said in five years, there won't be computer programmers. And they've been saying that every five years for the last 40 years. And now we have more computer programmers than ever. Because there's more things to program about. Right. Which is a lot of how to do your tax software, but I, but I want <laughs> to know not, that's not accurate. I want to know exactly how computers have made food safer, um, or how technology. Not see, I, I I you I I am not prepared uh, to to debate this because I haven't had time to prepare for this. But I'm trying to think of thing. I'm thinking of things like along the lines of maybe having to do with uh, with things like being able to do quality control on various kinds of foods, or I'm thinking about things like being able to track uh, epidemiology, being able to track things like diseases that go around, um, you know, all the way down to like people in Africa being able to have the beginnings uh, of trade based on SMS and things like that. There's all kinds of ways in which technology gets used in a novel way, in a small way, or in a uh, scalable way, in a big way, that end up improving our life. And, And the thing is, I think the fallacy is to think that any given new technology is going to fix the world. It's not. It's just going to be the next technology that we then make a decision what to do with. Which I guess I'm saying for the last 40 years, we have been tracking that. And in any kind of like, I think the food safety stuff that you're saying, the computers have made it much easier to import strawberries from New Zealand, which is a thing that computers made it necessary to do in a way, you know, like, or, or like computers invented in importing strawberries from New Zealand in a way, let's just say technology did. Yeah. We now have the technology to have strawberries all year round. And that's the that's kind of the amazing thing. We didn't used to have strawberries all year round. Now we do. And and that is I guess the I guess the th- the thing that I notice that's that actually is an improvement, right? There was a time when you'd go to the grocery store in the winter and all you had was root vegetables and chocolate covered grasshoppers. Mhm. Uh, except the, the grasshoppers weren't chocolate covered, but now we have them, and those things have created a whole new host of problems, and you know, and so now we have to use technology to to facilitate these processes, processes that you know, it's like we created problems and now are and now are solving them. I guess that is the march of technology. Well, especially if you take technology to mean. I, again, that word technology is uh, can can be kind of uh, thorny. You introduced technology into this conversation. I was saying computers, computers, okay. computers, computers. Oh, okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah, because I, I, I mean, like, is a better plow 
because I'm trying to understand what, what what you're saying to, to have it not not just sound like an old man thing, it's, but it's it sounds like you're saying that. You, well, you tell me, but it sounds like you're saying that what widespread availability of computing means is just the need for more computing. Uh, well, no, I'm saying show me where quality of life has improved in the last fifty years that where you can directly tie it to improvements in technology. Well, Rather, it seems like every time I do that, though, you then turn that into a thing where you're just going to show how that's really about computers. But I, I think, but there are, there are. No, I mean, that's what that's what it seems like. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't. I guess, I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out. Is like, when was there a time when this was ever any different? I well, because I'm not sure I fully understand what your point is. And if I do, though, it's it's that there's something has changed in the last well, 40, 50 years. I guess I would say at the turn of the. Uh, at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century, we had an explosion of technology that, where we had the electric light bulb, we had the, you know, certainly we would already had the locomotive, but we had the motor car, we had the airplane. Um, and so throughout the, throughout the 18th century, we developed the steam engine, uh, ships no longer had sails, and that was a fantastic march of progress. Um, you know, my mom remembers the first time she saw a tractor. <laughs> because before that they were plowing with horses. Really? That was like in her lifetime? It, well, I well, mean given, they, given where she lived. There were already lots of tractors, but but it you know, they weren't they were expensive. Mm -hmm. And so they were plowing her 40 acres with horses and then they got a tractor and a combine or a combine attachment to a tractor, but still the the uh the cart where the grain was going was pulled by horses and that was pulled by horses into the late 40s. Um so those are real, real like technologies that, that changed everybody's life. But, but we are looking at the last 40 years, and I think the, the, the actual way we're living in 2015 or 2016 compared to how we were living in 1966 hasn't really changed. We're basically flying the same airplanes. We are driving the same cars for all intents and purposes. And filling out our taxes and voting and um, and we have not and, and we like to think that this has been a comparable revolution, but a lot more of it is just spinning our wheels like we like because in 1966, the perception of where we would be in 2016 was just as you're saying, like, wow, five years from now, it's the future. And. A lot of the things that H.G. Wells talked about actually came true. The, the, the physical, uh, like new technology actually was, became real and was astonishing. And from 1966 to the present, we haven't, things are very different. We're doing very different things. People aren't sitting in, and, and typing on carbon copy. They are moving stuff around with a mouse. Mm -hmm. But the output is still, you know, the 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 newspaper on the on the TV isn't actually much of a. It's it's not a major change relative to a to a newspaper. We still read newspapers. Not all of us, right? But uh, but you know, the information contained in it is more or less identical. And think uh, of that as consumer-facing stuff, though. I guess I'm thinking more about things that I don't understand in infrastructure, where I guess I, my gut would be that there are things 
in the infrastructure where that technology is like, making things better and safer. Poop, poop moves down tubes. Mm-hmm. And before, poop was moving down tubes and, and guys in overalls were like, well, I think probably we got to clog up there at the head, headwaters. And then they'd go up with shovels and a steam engine and dig it up. <laughs> and now we've got somebody sitting in a dark room looking at a thousand different poop lines and saying like, yep, the poop is clogged up at the headwaters. And it's, it is now computerized and it is, it is better, right? But not as dramatically as we, as we think. Not as... Well, yeah, but... All, still, the, the poop still goes down tubes. Yeah, but, but and part of that is also that's just the nature... Uh, I feel like that's, part of that is just the nature of how changing technology works, where... Well, except in, 19, in the early 1900s, poop went from being buried in pits to going down tubes. That or was the being, amazing, like, thrown out a window. Or being thrown out of, of a window, which is why the man walked on the edge of the sidewalk. And threw his coat down into the puddle. Yes. Um, so that was the that was the the major advance. Now now we have a sewer, but computerizing the the process of poop going down tubes hasn't really changed uh, changed it. It's still a nineteenth century technology. It just has sensors in it now. Hmm. So uh, I don't, you know, I don't want to like go down a, a list of a thousand examples and you have a thousand examples. My, my, my challenge with this is that, is that I don't know enough about actual technology to be able to s- describe these things except by analogy, whereas I, I could join you pretty easily in finding things that are exceptions or problems from these technologies that don't require a technical background. I just, I, I'm a bad person to argue about this with because I just don't know enough about how it actually works. But again, I, I bet there were, you know, there were certainly, there's enough anecdotes about saying, well, now trains are going too fast and pregnant women shouldn't ride on them, which was not true. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that they would say. You could say, yeah, we made these, we made these planes, but you know, hey, you know, those first planes that they sent into war were not that reliable and they were used to kill people, so should we stop making planes? It's just that, you know, for every example, there's something that we learned, and maybe at this point, maybe I'm just being a little bit, uh, what's that, English guy? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that we should stop, because yeah. I, f- I feel like, the, I feel like we, we've talked about this quite a bit. We are on the cusp of a big revolution. Like, when, when self-driving cars, and I hate to keep bringing them up, but Do when you- self I, not really. When self-driving cars, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's fascinating. Personally, I, I could have cared less a year ago, and now I'm really interested. Yeah, when those are happening, that will be the thing that I go there. There it is. That is an absolutely new thing that could not be accomplished without computers. It is a major advance, and it changes everyone's life dramatically. Right. That will be the first sign that. I have seen that the computer revolution of the late 20th century, the last 50 years of gearing up and getting everybody so that they understand this and increasing processing power to be able to revolutionize transportation in that way. I'll go, yes, absolutely. But, you know, the, the, the jet airplane was invented in the 40s. And by the 50s, we had a 707 that was, you know, and what we've done in making the 787 is make that much incrementally more efficient but still it's essentially the same thing and and everyone you know like in the 1950s office we were accomplishing a, a tremendous amount of paper pushing and we are still pushing those papers now uh, they just they're just electric papers but like the <laughs> we're pushing electric papers 
But now, now with with the with these systems coming online, that's going to be tremendous. And I feel like, you know, Twitter is kind of a kind of a, a like a glimpse of the future. But it is, but you know, it's like it 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 is, it, it is something new, right? Something that didn't exist before. That's that gives a glimpse of what what society, how society is going to be different. But, but I, but I, I'm just saying that I feel like the last 40 years has just been, just been changing the tools and, and maybe it's equivalent to the years between 1830 and 1880 where, you know, we were building these creaky, weird little railroads and, and steam engines were, were increasing productivity and, and creating cities, but it wasn't clear what that was going to be like. And then all of a sudden, in 1880, there was an explosion of that technology. And we also had cities now that were like a long-term product of the steam engine. But it wasn't clear what those were going to be. So now we had cities. We had to solve city problems. The steam engine was great for that. But then it did, you know, it did change our lives or the internal combustion engine, you know, changed our lives. And that's about to happen. And I'm excited about it. And it is what, it is what technology is, is enabling us to do. And, and now we're going to see what it is. But like up, to, we've been in a, trans, our whole lives, we've been in this kind of interregnum where it's, you know, where we've kind of just been, We've been taking all those boxes of legal papers up in the attic and we've been inputting them into the machines mm-hmm. and, and, uh, you know, and we're on the cusp, I guess. But what my, what my mom was saying was it was kind of proof of that, which is that we've been putting everything into computers all this time and it really hasn't increased productivity. One, say it with me, iota. Mm, not even, not even a partial bit. Not even an iota. <laughs> Which is a very small amount of iota, right? Because it's iotas all the way down. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, write to me at uh, John Rod- John dot Roderick at oh, fuckyou.com. No. Oh dear! <laughs> and send me all the uh, all of the ways in which that what I've just what I've just said is not true. Mm. <sighs> mm. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Want to talk about billionaires? No. Mm. Wah, wah, wah. <sighs> I wanted to like Moby Dick. I uh, found Moby Dick impenetrable as a eight-year-old, and so I thought when I was a twenty-year-old that I would read it again and understand it. And uh, you know, I'm an enormous Melville fan of other other of his works. Well, I, I, I had to read it in college. And uh, I had a class called American Masterworks one semester, and we read Absalom, Absalom, Moby mm-hmm. Dick, and The Ambassadors. And I liked Absalom, Absalom a lot, but uh, maybe not so much the others. But I got through Moby Dick because I kept telling myself it was postmodern. That, like it's up there with uh, what, like Tristram Shandy. It's like one of the original postmodern books was what I kept telling myself even though I never completely understood what that phrase meant, and it didn't actually help make the book that much more interesting. Mm-hmm. 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 I, I preferred uh, Joseph Conrad in every, in every respect. Um, but yeah, I didn't. And you know, I read Tale of Two Cities again, and I didn't like it either. Um, 
But obviously, the worst of all those books is Billy Budd. Billy Budd. That's Herman Melville, too, right? Mm, Billy Budd. Billy Budd. That's, uh, that's another one that's on a ship, right? Yeah, unreadable. Unreadable. I, you know, here's the thing, is that uh, I, was a, I was a good reader. I was a big reader. I read a lot. But, um, and, but there was a, a thing that happened, and you can think about stuff like Classics Illustrated. There was definitely like a push in the 60s and 70s to get kids to want to read real books. Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't enough. Obviously, you should never read a comic book. That's going to rot your mind. You know, you, don't, you can only read so much Henry Huggins before you become a dullard. Encyclopedia Brown, sure. You, you know, you, how are you going to get really smart unless you read these big, thick European books? Wait, what, what's Henry Huggins? Oh, Henry Huggins is that boy, you know, with Ramona Quimby and uh, his dog Ribsy. Hmm. They're, they're very do? readable. Do, does he solve crimes? Uh, not per se. Not per se. It's just it's your pretty much straightforward kind of kids' book, you know, for like a third, fourth, fifth grader. Like Encyclopedia Brown, or I just... love Encyclopedia. My daughter and I had an Encyclopedia Brown uh, phase. Now the problem with Encyclopedia Brown, you get any collection of Encyclopedia Brown uh, stories, and a couple of them are really, really good. Where, like, I didn't see that coming, or that was really smart. Or I've read this with my daughter a couple times. We read it through. We tried to look for the clue. There's a, usually a couple of those in every collection that are actually really good detective stories, and the rest are terrible. And they're not terrible. The ones, some of them are terrible because they're obvious. The ones that are really terrible are where the, the, the trick just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There was one there was one that was about how could you tell that like he didn't actually lose this karate fight and it's because he fell fell backwards instead of forwards and stuff like that. You're like, Whoa. come on. That's that is not... a good trick. Now the guy who who put his kid on the hood of the car that sh- where the hood should have still been hot because they'd supposedly been driving all day, that's right in the pocket for Encyclopedia sure. Brown. Well, and that's some Sherlock Holmes stuff. Uh, except there absolutely. weren't cars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But you know, so so, so part of it was though that, uh, and I was I was a not a not a victim of this, but I was subject to this. Was hey, let's make these books. You know, and you know, it's so great whenever the grownups want to make stuff palatable to kids, which they really mean. It's like it's like tricking your dog into eating a pill by putting it in peanut butter. Like the, you know, after the dog has eaten the pill, it's going to go. Oh, you just totally fucking tricked me. So like, I remember I had a co- small collection of like inexpensive hardback books of the classics but they had like fun covers <laughs> but it was still a tale of two cities inside yeah yeah, yeah i remember, remember that those? like where you try and make it more like fun you'd update the covers and make it a little hip and like it's still like ugh. i never got past the first couple of pages of a tale of two cities did you ever see the extreme teen bible <laughs> no, I don't think I know about this. Yeah, Sean Nelson found one of these one time, the extreme teen bible and it was the bible updated oh. for teens. But not just teens. Oh, come on. Extreme teens. No fears, no regrets. That's right. And so it had like certain, I mean, it had been streamlined so that all the King James talk was taken out of it. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, Jesus was a righteous dude and he made the fishes turn into, or he made the 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 uh, old shoe leather leather turn into fishes or whatever he did. yeah sure sure whatever he did and uh, something something of, Matthew yeah like jumping up and down and he said this and then everybody was like nah and then he was like yeah and then he ripped off an extreme ollie yeah that's right then he that's <laughs> right he carved a major fucking boner <laughs> word uh, and then you know certain passages were in were in red and then on the side there were sidebars where it was like did you know that Jesus never took any shit off of nobody. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. And uh, it, was, it was fantastic. 
we had lots of fun with the Extreme Teen Bible, and I think we may have read it aloud from stage uh, on a particular tour. Let me, ask, let me ask you the obvious question here. So this was not just a different cover on like a new standard translation. They, they did their – it was rewritten in Extreme Teen Ease. Pretty sure. But I did mean, it still have chapters time. and verses or was it written more like stories? Mm, more like – well, you know, they had chapters and verses in that they pulled out chapters and verses so that you can memorize the numbers so that you could use those to defeat other people in arguments. Yeah, that's, that's key. So you could just be like, John 316, what do you say to that, brah? Mm. Um, and so they absolutely did that. You know, there are a lot of those sort of quotes that are just like, if you – if you're in an argument with somebody, you just drop John 316 on them, and then they just better shut up. That means uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin's going to kick your ass. That's right. That's right. Nelson's uh, Extreme Teen Bible delivers just what teens are looking for, real answers to life's tough questions. All the innovative study helps are geared to the teen culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll bet they are. The teen culture. All the innovative study helps. Yeah, was it, are you calling it Nelson's Extreme Teen Bible? Uh, it's written by Thomas Nelson. Uh, that, probably no, uh, no relation. That may be why Sean Nelson uh, was first turned on to the Extreme Teen Bible. He was probably, this was before Search Engine. Sure. So he would have been in the bookstore looking at all the books that had been written by people named Nelson and, and discovered it. I mean, it's just a guess. Seems like a weird coincidence. Uh, oh, gosh. So here's the official Amazon.com review. Uh, Extreme Teen Bible dares teens to crack open its pages and live up to the cutting-edge standard found inside. Can you fucking do it? Can you do it? Can you crack it open? Are you going to be a chicken? Bok, bok, bok. Yeah, exactly. Do you dare crack this open? This new King James translation, oh, bad idea, thoroughly explained in teen-friendly language. Yep. <laughs> I feel like It's going to be totally grungified. <laughs> I feel like this is how Mark Driscoll got his start, right? The, uh, the famous Seattle uh, minister with tattoos who's like, Dude, dude, brah, my wife is smoking hot. To the max. And I like to fucking do it with her over and over because that's the Christian way. And you could submit, you know, your wife needs to submit to you. It's like a S&M ministry with a lot of <laughs> rock and roll that had, that's, that's fa- founded in the concept of like your wife serves you. Yeah. That's the, you know, that's, that's what, that's what the extreme teen Bible told me. <laughs> And, I love uh, that idea. Yeah, and, okay. and then, seriously, his congregation had like ten thousand members, and they all were like, "What's up, brah?" They all had nipple piercings or whatever, mm. and uh, you know. And then it turned out that he was just—can you believe it? He was—he was a little corrupt and contemptible. No fears, no regrets, just a future with a promise. A future with a promise. Future with a promise. Mm-hmm. A future with. Oh, I get it. I mm-hmm. get what the promise is. I get what the future is. The promise is. of technology, John. It's uh-huh. the ability to get uh, GMO uh, foods into your uh, grocery store via email. See, this is, a, this is an incredible technology of year zero. Uh-huh. You don't have to die. You hmm. go up into space. Hmm. Like that, that's really the first space travel. Is your soul going into space? It's, it's, we kid, but uh, this does suffer from that same problem, which is that, you know, we try, you know, when you're trying to like guide a kid to something you know is, uh, good useful timeless like mm-hmm. even cool like it's so you can't help but sound like you're like an old man with a beetle wig when you're when you're trying to explain this stuff <laughs> are you, you talking oh, about you, beetle you check Bob out now. Uh, check out uh, johnny tremaine that's is a really <laughs> you should see what happens to this kid oh boy does he ever overcome disability in the most extreme way 
You know, uh, our, our listeners may remember Brother Gabe, the Dominican monk who yep. is a regular listener to our program. And many he went of to, them, he's in Portland now. That's right. Many of them don't realize that Brother Gabe has become Father Gabe in, uh, in, uh, within, within the, t- the scope of our podcast. He's gone from a burr to a fur. That's right. Now he's a fur Gabe. They gave him his own parish, I think. Uh, they did, or maybe there's one gr- one priest with a grayer beard that's up up the chain from him. I, I saw mean, him at a bar. Uh, he's in his robes as always, yep. drinking a beer. I don't know how this guy gets so much dough, but he's. Uh, he, I saw him at a bar in Portland. He's like, yeah, they totally gave me a church here. Oh, they gave him a, a whole church. Of he's his not own. in Oakland anymore. He they gave him the. the he got an upgrade. Well, he's not in Oakland anymore. He's extreme. No, no fears. No regrets. <laughs> so he's gonna be. Can you carry these beads? I didn't think so. He's probably going to have a lot to say <laughs> about uh, the extremity. <laughs> the extremity of our Lord? Yeah, the, I think the Bible he uses is still hand-illustrated and in Latin, and he does a real-time translation into English. He could get a computer for that. See? Mm-hmm. I, you know, I do that all the time. When people, uh, when people write me in foreign languages, I just go on the computer and write them back. And that is a major, that is a major change. I will say that. That's like, oh, yeah, I'm writing to you in Serbo-Croatian, which I'm sure now I'm going to get angry letters from Serbs and Croats (laughs) who are like, they're not the same language. There's no Czechoslovakia anymore. You're talking about about the Ukraine? (laughs) No, don't say it. Oh, God. Oh, now I'm in trouble. So actually, that one makes a big difference. I didn't realize what a big deal the definite article is with Ukraine, but that's a big deal. It's a big deal. Have you come around to that? Absolutely. I mean, I've been, I have been on, I have been on their side uh, ever since it was first explained to me. It's just a bad habit. I know. I know. Yeah. You know, it's just this terrible, like, oh, anyway, the Ukraine, and it's like, ah, no. But, uh, but it took me a long time even to, I, I absolutely like understood it. It just took me so long to break the habit. The hell, Ukraine, <sighs> the Czech Republic. Although you do say that, I got a burlitz to try to be able to talk to my stepfather. I got a Serbo-Croatian uh, Berlitz when I was uh, about 12. You're saying that your stepfather speaks uh, Serbo-Croatian? First of all, he's fucking dead, uh, thank God. Right. Uh, but yeah, no, I tried to learn a little bit. Tried to learn a little bit. Let's hear a little bit. Dobroveče, kako ste? Okay. I heard that already. <laughs> That's what all is- I remember. I was 12. <laughs> do we, do, I'll, do, I'll do you up some Spanish I'll, in a heartbeat, but yeah. I mean, I, I don't feel the obligation to remember a, a lot of Serbo-Croatian. He was a bad person. Very yeah. bad oh, person. Dobri den. den. I used to say that all the time. What'd that mean? That's like, hello, uh, oh. good day. Good day. Um, but, you know, like I got, I got to the point where I could, I, I, I greeted someone in Czech one time and they uh, replied to me enthusiastically in Czech. And I was like, oh, sorry, that was just, a, I, was just I was just kidding. I only know like seven words. Oh, that must be so disappointing. And they, they, but then they were like, wow, your accent is incredible. And I was like, ah, not really. I mean, I only know seven words. And they were like, no, but you really got the accent. Mm. So I said my seven words, and they were like very impressed with, with my like monkey imitation of how they pronounce things. And for a very brief moment, I imagined myself learning Czech. Mm. And I was like, eh, nah. Nope. I never learned German, and that would have been actually practical. Something um, I, I, I do a lot. And I see a lot of my friends doing a lot. I don't see you doing so much. You're not a big recommender of media. 
I've mm-hmm. noticed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know you like a lot, or like you have consumed and actually enjoy a lot of media, but mm-hmm. like I don't very, I feel like I don't very often hear you wanting to pull somebody in, aside and say like, you know, here's, this is the movie, check out this movie, check out this particular book from the Discworld series or whatever. I don't hear you like pulling out like specific, is that, is that by design or mm-hmm. like, how does that work? Because you, you have a lot of opinions, you mm-hmm. know a lot of stuff. Um, are you, are you not a big recommender of media? I'm not, and and it's because uh, because I early on I I understood there to be a tremendous difference between being a reader and being a fetishistic reader of lists of of books, and and it came as a result of a a conversation I overheard between two people who were both who both presented themselves as extremely well read, and they were arguing. Uh, with each other and by just essentially citing uh, John 317 or 316 or whatever in the sense that they were saying like, oh yeah, that's interesting. You know, that's just like this passage from Ulysses, Ulysses. And then the other person would say, yeah, it really reminds me of blankety blank. Uh, you know, this, uh, the, the original translation of, um, uh, on, on a Karenina. This is a this is a classic liberal arts problem. A right. classic liberal arts conversation is two people trying to outduel each other on references, and right. and nobody's ever allowed to say I don't know what you're talking about or what that means. Yeah, and they were just throwing book titles and authors at one another, and at the end of the conversation, there was no no understanding had taken place. No, there was it was not a conversation about ideas. It this was, was actually co- discussed at length by uh, Italo Calvino. Oh, really? No, uh, I just well, made that up. that's very interesting because Umberto Eco had a had a passage about uh, Calvino. Oh, I remember reading about uh, that. It was it was something in the New Yorker about Borges. I was reading. Please yeah, go exactly. Ahead. I was reading the Times Literary Supplement. Oh, the other are you day still reading that about oh, a book about Borges? Be, that used to be so good. I'm so yeah. glad you can still enjoy that. Anyway, it was infuriating because the initial the, the initial jumping off point of the conversation was an idea, and I really was excited about it. The idea. And I kept, I kept waiting for someone to say something about it. And, and eventually, like, we were a thousand miles from that idea, but had tra- traversed no ground and no ideas had been shared. And I realized, like, part of my education, or a large part of it, was just my own way of finding a path through ideas. And, you know, if you, if you walk into not even a large library, but just, just someone's home library, where the books are, where it's floor to ceiling books on three walls. That's more books than you could possibly read in a lifetime. And so, so there's so much emphasis on, you know, here's the 10 books you need to read, or here's the 10 books that, that this smart guy recommends. And really what you're doing when you're doing that is missing the opportunity for you to find your 10 books. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing as a book that isn't useful, even a book that you hate or a book that you throw on the ground. Like if you read, if you read two chapters of a book and you're like, this is garbage and you throw it away, that was just as useful as reading a book all the way through in terms of you discovering your own taste and you finding your own intellectual path. So there was a crucial moment in my life where I had a friend whose mother, was, uh, whose mother taught a course on the novel at a university and I was very poor. So when he was done reading the books that his mother was, um, was 
forcing her students to read, he would pitch those books to me. And it was basically just, well, just one professor's reading list. It was like I was taking her class. But it came at precisely the moment when I didn't have money to buy books. And so I had this steady stream of books. But I was getting, no, I was getting none of her interpretation. I was not sitting in class discussing it with other students. I was just getting these free books, right? And, and so those books were leaping off points for me to go read other books like, what is this about? Oh, I'm going to go chase this. And it was all very personal. So I, I really believe even, even when you are given a reading list that if you're not pursuing a personal journey, you're not getting an education because, the, because chasing is the key element. And so I'm very reluctant to, you know, when people are like, give me three books about World War II. I'm like, there are so many books about World War II. Start with the one in front of you. Start with the first one. Don't even go on Amazon and look hmm. for the one that has the best rating. Find one and start reading it and then chase that trail because it's yours. It belongs to you. And like my take on World War I, what interests me about it and the Balfour Declaration and the life that I have spent chasing the, the, the ramifications of the Balfour Declaration and how that changed the world. And we're still, we're, we're, we're in a world that is absolutely a product of that. And that was a product of World War I. Like, that's mine, you know? Mm -hmm. And that may not be what you take away from World War One. You may you may take a different thing and chase your own dragon. So that's why I don't recommend media, even when people, you know, address me directly and say, "Please tell me what where I should go," because it's you know it's it's obvious where you should go. You just you just start and chase. Hmm. Um. Because I don't. Because the thing that I hate the most is this kind of monoculture of situations where everybody's seen the same thing. Everybody's seen the same thing, and everybody has read enough reviews on the internet that they know what their take on it should be. And so there's not enough. There there, there aren't enough situations where people are saying, "Well, you know what? That's not what I got out of that book at all." That people have forgotten how to trust their own instincts, and. You know, and the example of this is at a certain point, everybody agreed that the Eagles suck. And everybody was reading the same critical art, or all the cool kids were reading the same articles where people initially were, were advancing a pretty, uh, f you know, like a pretty contra argument. The Eagles' greatest hits is the best-selling album of all time. And so super easy in in the 80s to write an article saying actually the Eagles are garbage and then that became a thing that you could not argue against you know a real group thing yeah so that even now when Glenn Fry died there were all these all these reflection pieces that were like well he sucked and his band sucked but I still kind of feel like he sucked and I, and now he's dead, and so I can't really like this is sort of a a thing I'm writing to commemorate that, but he's really intolerable. And it was just like, wow, so now the the really radical stance to take is like, I liked the Eagles. And that's just a that's just a product, I think, of of people just having a having reading lists that are too small. And um something that runs through all these also is, in my mind, is this implicit 
Well, first of all, let me let me just bracket by saying, like, I think it, one thing I think is very useful to people can be very useful, and this this is I I don't know if we agree or disagree on this, but I think it can be useful to give somebody a starting point with something. So, like with comics, for example, I will frequently say, check out this comic or that comic. Watch and, me. huh? Watch me. Maybe not the best place to start, <laughs> but but there are comics out there, and, I, and I, but the thing is, I will also ask them. I'll say, like, okay, well, like, what kinds of like novels do you enjoy? What TV shows do you like? Not just for theme, not just for like, do you like Vikings or space people, mm-hmm. but along the lines of what kind of stories do you like? Because just because you like science fiction is no guarantee you're going to like Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Mm. That's going to be more like, you know, do you like switcheroos and change em ups? Ah, because, switcheroos, switcheroos and change em ups. Uh, and so I try to take all of that in being the person who's going to advise you where to start. I I want to take all that into consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, that can be helpful. But with that said, I think, I feel like sometimes there's in this, in this age, there's something kind of implicit. For a long time, we called it the canon. Like, you don't want to not know about something in the canon because you look like a dummy. So like, You should not, read Tom Sawyer. Well, or like, you know, whatever. Like if somebody starts talking about the old man in the sea, you want to be able to nod along and go, oh, yes, mm-hmm, oh, yes, yes, yes. And, but I, I think sometimes... I feel like maybe what what you might be pushing back against, I can't speak for you, but is this Cliff Notes problem of people it, it it sounds like they're saying, What books what books should I read? What books should I read? But uh, there's always this part of me that wants to say that feels like, well, there's also there's this tendency to say, like, what books should I be able to say that I've read? Which is a different, which is a different mm-hmm. thing altogether. Mm-hmm. And what you know, again, thinking about the way one discovers a book or a movie or a whatever accidentally, and you know, every anybody who's a nerd or a geek can talk about having like an extreme attachment to most other people don't like at all or consider to be the worst of that particular kind of thing. But you have a special affection for it because it was yours and you discovered that and you'll always have that. And even as your critical faculties theoretically grow, you might still always enjoy that one, even though you may not think it's the best one. But you can't know that unless you've sort of discovered it. The problem is if you go into it loaded for bear and you've, you've read this Wikipedia article, you've read the, the top 10 novels you need to read before you die, you've seen these lists and all these things, you know that like, there are certain things that you can name check that most people in the room are going to A, agree with, and are, are, are B, going to make, make you sound cool that you mm-hmm. said that mm-hmm. and that you didn't say that. So if you say, even though the Eagles uh, had one of the greatest selling albums of all time, several of them probably, um, it's not cool to say you like the Eagles because at some point we all agreed that they weren't cool. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's, that's part of it is that when you, I don't know, I don't want, I don't want to feed into that. I'm, I've certainly been guilty of that. I've gone and scurried to go learn about something as much as anybody else has. But the, but, but when you're talking about something that feels, especially if it feels like special to you, you know, you can't replicate the experience of having discovered something by having somebody hand you a list with three things on it and say, like, these are the three things you should know to, to name check. Yeah. I, the, the example that I always come back to is the, is the uh, Israel-Palestine problem. Like really thoughtful, intelligent, sensitive people can disagree passionately about what that problem is, right? What, co- what even constitutes that problem? And well, what, what constitutes the, the, constitutes the constellation of those problems. Right, right. I mean, it's like know, trying to explain South Africa. Like, you think you understand South Africa? Go talk to our friend Grant. It's always been way more complicated than anybody realized. Yeah, infinitely, infinitely complicated. And so your, your jumping off point for the Israeli-Palestinian problem 
in a lot of ways is your moral education, right? Like you can read a thousand books about it and depending, you know, you, you are going to have your opinion either confirmed or you're going to disagree or, I mean, like the, like the number of, of entrance points to that argument, it, it's, in a lot of ways, it's very hard for me even to imagine how you would educate someone on it that wasn't deeply personal, um, because there are because there are so many factors in play, and a lot of them are uh, are a product of books that you read a long, long time before, and how you how you responded to your nursery rhymes in a way, and so. You know, last night I was watching um, a mini series about Carlos the Jackal, uh, and I, I was doing that because that's what I think is fun. That's what is this, I is this uh, Narcos? No, 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 no. Carlos the Jackal, uh, a completely other, not not um, not related to Narcos at all. Carlos the Jackal was a was a well, I guess he was one of the people that invented terrorism. Um, an early at, well, he 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 was a terrorist that that went through every stage. Like he started in the '60s, he wasn't arrested finally until 1994, and he pioneered a lot of terrorism, a lot of different kinds of terrorism. I mean, he was there at the start when hijacking planes was still fun, mm-hmm. and so and he was fighting for the Palestinian cause and for the and also for the cause of global revolution. And this miniseries is there sort of uh, glamorizing him and making him, he's very sexy and he's, and he, and the, he's the hero of this film and played by a sexy actor. And because it was made by French, it was made by French television, it shows his penis. And so you go, you know, uh, there is a way to watch it where you become very sympathetic to the idea of throwing a grenade into a cafe because this is, you know, this is your protagonist and to watch it is to suggest either that you begin reading backwards, you know, you start at the the white album and then you listen to Sgt. Pepper, and then you listen to Rubber Soul, and you go back to Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, you have to do that to make any sense of this, what's happening in Carlos the Jackal. And then you start reading forward after you have that, if you, after you've read backwards. Then you have to start reading forward from there. And that's a very involved and personal journey, right? I mean, if you're starting off, because there are a lot of people wearing uh, wearing Palestinian scarfs on their college campus who have been given an opinion about it by their, you know, by their professor or their friends or whoever stopped them on campus and handed them a flyer. And, you know, and that was their entrance point into, into having a, having a feeling about it. And then that's going to really determine how you, how you read everything else mm-hmm. and hard to imagine that, that, that whatever whatever that first sort of black and white opinion you you developed, hard to imagine that it's ever really going to be affected by the evidence because it's so intractable. 
you know, but you, but there, there are so many depths of opinion you can have about it. And one of them is to stand in, in, in your quad and yell about it. And one of them is to have read 80 books. So I don't know. I would like people to, I would like people to have read the 80 books that I've read, but I would also like people to have read 80 different books. And I don't know. I honestly don't know how to, because I think you're right. There are a lot of ways. I, I guess I don't want to shape. I don't want to shape people who are interested in me in a way that makes them acolytes, you know? Uh-huh. So anyway, yeah, I don't, I don't recommend a lot of, of media and, um, and maybe that's, maybe that's not, maybe that's not good. Maybe I should. I, part of it is I don't, I don't know where to start, mm-hmm. you know, I, and I don't know why you would be interested in the Balfour Declaration the first time you read about it. You know, I don't know how you would see it and understand what it represented. Well, <clears throat> I don't know how much you're sandbagging here, but. And I'm not sure I know what sandbagging is. Oh, is that where like, you pre- you prevent a river from overflowing? Yep, it's a little bit like hustling. Oh. It's a little bit like acting uh, acting like you uh, aren't, aren't as good at something as you are, right? Mm-hmm. By which I just mean that. Well, I, I, you can, I hope you can understand that when you listen to somebody else talk about something that you don't know about, or you don't know a lot about, or you don't have an opinion that you are particularly attached to. I mean, just think about how much of what we do in a given, most people, including me, in a given month is like listening to what other people have to say about something. And in this case, you're talking about, uh, in some cases, some stuff that, uh, if you're talking about World War II or whatever, that's people know some stuff about, but they'd never thought about it in the way that you put it. You seem like a pretty intelligent guy and you've got a point of view about it. I don't think it's unusual at all to say, huh, I'd like to be a little bit smarter about that. Where should I start? Well, yeah, but what got me into World War II was, A, my dad fought in it, and B, the planes and the boats and the trucks and the tanks were cool. Like, I think when you talk about high water marks, there was never a cooler set of gear. And as a kid, like, when F-4 Phantoms were flying all around my house, I was much more interested in the F-4U uh, Navy airplane that took off from aircraft carriers and you know and fought over Corregidor, just because I loved the planes, you know, mm-hmm. and I would buy, and I would get these books about World War II planes and I would look at them and I would learn about them and I just thought they were rad. And through that, through thinking the planes were rad, I read enough of those books that I started to say, oh shit, you know, World War II, what's going on here? It's not just you know, it's not just Hitler and Yamamoto. It's like, who are all these other characters? And then read about them. And then, uh, you know, then I got con- confused and I, and I watched the winds of war. And then having watched the winds of war, I read the winds of war. You know, and, and so then I became, you know, then I became conversant in World War II. And World War I looked so boring. So boring. They just sat in muddy trenches for years with ha- helmets that had little spikes on them. And every once in a while, somebody got hung up in some barbed wire. And it was just like yawn city. Uh, and I avoided learning about World War I for a long, long time because it was just so dull. They're, they had no cool planes. Like Eddie Rickenbacker up there in a plane made of balsa wood. Yawn. 
But the more I learned about World War II, the more I didn't understand. The more I learned about Hitler, the more I didn't understand. And, and eventually all arrows pointed to World War I. And I didn't want to learn about it. I didn't want to read about World War I. God, what is it? A bunch of, ugh. A bunch of people riding into battle on horseback and getting cut down by machine guns. Nothing about that is fun. But then I read about it and started to realize that that what was interesting about World War I was that it was, it was the 19th century colliding with the 20th century and all these empires collide, you know, washing up on the shore of modernity. And then I had to go back and learn about the empires, you know, and that, that was like me reluctantly the mm -hmm. whole time, just kicking and screaming. I don't want to learn about Prussia. What does that have to do with anything? There are no even airplanes. Uh, and then I'm reading about the Thirty Years' War, which if you want to talk about boring, it's not that the Thirty Years' War was boring. It's that the scholarship about it is boring. And, you know, it's always uh, it's chapter after chapter about salting the fields. And why is the king of Sweden involved? You know, and then it's back. And then it's back. Then it, the, the wave washes back. So so to to say to anybody like, here, you know, here's the book about World War One you should read. I didn't get there that way. I got there through loving airplanes. Mm -hmm. So I can't, I can't divorce that. I can't divorce that whole long walk and then walking back and then walking this way and walking that way from that initial beginning of like uh, just being a kid sitting cross-legged in the library reading about, about these cool things. Hmm. And, and and I guess that's how I found my way into every single thing I ever read, and it feels so it feels so individual that at, at at every every book I recommend I I feel this enormous responsibility to recommend the ten books that should come in advance of it, and right. it feels a little bit like the long version of The Godfather, where I'm trying to put these movies that I watched that were narratively all broken up and trying to put them in some kind of chronological order. And so then I'm like, well, you have to start reading a book about the 30 years war, which is literally the most boring thing I ever read. So you're not going to want to do that. Yeah. But it's like, you're, you're, it's kind of a similar point to the talking about Palestine and Israel uh, or however you choose to frame that um, is that you, the first thing you want to, almost recommend is or that you can't recommend is to start with the state of mind that I had, which I don't want you to have, but to take the journey that I did, you must first start with the state of mind that I had, which I could not replicate for you. Right. And I wouldn't even recommend it if I could. Yeah. Right. Like, and, and, and you wonder where people are on that. Like, do you still like cool planes? Is that where you're, is that why you're interested in world war two? Is it cool planes? Because I can tell you what to read about cool planes. But where are you coming into it? Are you coming into it having watched Band of Brothers and you want to know more? Right. That's fascinating too. But by the time I watched Band of Brothers, I had all this context that made that, that, made that miniseries really sing to me. If that was the first thing I'd experienced about World War II, you know, I would, I would just jump off from there. Like go, like figure out who Major Winters was and what he was like when he was a lieutenant. Uh, I, you know? I love that series it's so, so great. much. It's so, so amazing. Much. And, and everything in it, like when you're getting to the point where there is in the Ardennes, 
when, is that when they have the really the tough winter in the forest yeah, yeah. and, the, and you, the bombs coming in? Um, but you know the thing is, you go and and if you're like me, you're sitting there and looking at Wikipedia while you're watching it, and there's not a there's not a lick of exaggeration in what's happening right, in that. Right, it's right. exactly as awful as it looked. It's so it's so incredible, and that's and there are 50 movies about D Day, and 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 about uh, Battle of the Bulge, which is the absolute last thing that's happening in that war where already 6 million russian soldiers have died right I don't you're you know you're starting in the third act of yeah. the war that's the uh, wrong place to come in on that play yeah and the, and the united states really plays a small role in the war in terms of fighting battles like the battle of stalingrad we there aren't 50 movies about uh but you know, talk about brutality. Oh but the God. thing about thing about D Day is it's so fantastic. These guys and these little. I was boats. explaining this to my daughter. Did you see the photo I just sent you? No. Oh, my my daughter. Uh, I sent you a photo on your phone. Oh, on my phone. Oh shit, that's a whole other technology than the one I'm sitting in from. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, anyway, I'll, I'll, the the important thing to know is that my daughter went for her her brownie troop went to an aviation museum, and she's really into planes now. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, and you can see here where she's. Uh, my wife calls me over and to look at her door, she's got a chalkboard on her door and it now says home to Amelia Earhart and has a oh. plane hanging from it. Oh. And she comes out and she goes, yeah, just so you know, I'm going to be into this for like a year. And oh. <laughs> but she was so excited. And so we've been talking a lot about planes and about, about, you know, aeronautics, aviation. And, and I told her your dad's story about the zero <laughs> and how we it may or may not be exactly true. But I, I told her, told her that story. But uh, what was my point talking to her about D-Day? And I was trying to explain D-Day to her and like, uh, and, but just how improbable so much of D-Day was to just, you know, and it's like, like I've said a bunch of times and I know pe people, there are people, older people who disagree with this. I've argued with my, my mother-in-law about this, but like just that sense of like, if you came in on the movie, let's say if you, if you're learning about World War II and you left off what? And midway, like if you at some point in like say forty three, there's no guarantee that this was going to end great for no. America. No, um, just I mean I think that one of the, if there's anything to take away, and I don't mean to give advice here, is just to remember like how bad it seemed and how entirely possible it seemed at a certain point that we were going to lose and we were going to lose big, and just just to even to know about like what went into like all of the like uh, all the different drives to try and get the resources, what people in America were foregoing to go to the troops, and it's just it's a story that as many times as it's told is still incredibly moving to me. How we kept at it, oh, especially England, my God, but how we kept at it even when stuff got so so very terrible. And then like you can't really appreciate how awesome the D whole D Day thing is unless you appreciate what a crapshoot. <laughs> It was. This, there's no way a plan that huge could work and not be discovered and work. It's it's mind-boggling. And, and uh, you're exactly right because because so often now the f the first thing you understand about the Battle of Midway was that it was the turning point of the war in the Pacific. <laughs> and it's like here, the Battle of Midway was the turning point of the war in the Pacific. And so you go, oh, okay, really? And you watch every you you learn about it as a fait accompli. And really, it was a totally random series of happy accidents, incredible luck, and like awesome risk taking, right? I mean, the, the risks involved, the people who were flying on empty gas tanks to at the last possible minute 
look down through the clouds and see a task force and ra- radio it in and just be like, wow, what? Go, go, go. Because at this point, at this point, weren't the Japanese still just basically kicking our ass in the oh, air? Oh, they were kicking our ass everywhere. They, I mean, they were they were kicking our ass in uh, in, you know, Malaysia and Indonesia and Philippines. And they were just they were ruling. And we were like we we uh, most of our fleet was on was at the bottom of Pearl Harbor. And we just, you know, and this is the thing, like American pluck. I mean, it's part of our, it's part of our, our foundation myth almost, or actually, but yeah, you have to read about that stuff with that sense of like, this could go either way in a big way. We're, we are the underdogs here. And that's, what's so great about it. But like when D-Day started, when they, when they made those landings, they didn't know that Hitler was Hitler had gone insane. They didn't really, I mean, they knew that the Russians were, were pushing back and they knew that that was the strategy, but they didn't know that the chain of command in the Nazi army had broken down and that Hitler was acting as his own general and not taking any advice from his soldiers. Right. So now we look at that and we're like, oh, well shit, there wasn't any way we could lose, but that's, you know, that's not how they thought. And, and yeah, all that home front stuff. I mean, how many books have you read about it? How, how many different times did you have an aha moment? I'm still reading books like, like that, The Meaning of Hitler, where it's a palm slap to the forehead. Wow. Huh. I never thought of that. I never in all the years of reading about this stuff had that moment. And I don't know what, what, it, what it would have been like if I had read The Meaning of Hitler first. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm confused by it. And, and, um, and, and, and eventually like, how do you, because, because I'm so thrilled that Eleanor likes airplanes. Yeah. And because that's the, she entrance. got the little helmet and the goggles and the whole nine. <laughs> that's the entrance to so much for me. <laughs> airplanes were the, were the, were the gateway drug for my whole education. And, the different ways that people could enter into, I mean, you know, if the first thing you read is, is House of Green Gables or Pride and Prejudice, you're going to follow such an incredibly different and amazing path. And I envy you. And I would never want to interrupt that by saying, read this book about airplanes in, in a way, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and so, and you know, and that's part of the weird, weird uh, gender specificity of culture that, you know, that, in, uh, I, and I don't understand the process of like how much of it is self-selecting, how much of it is imposed, but Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret was a book that a lot of people in my fifth grade class read and talked about, and I read secretly because no boys were supposed to read it. Oh, interesting. are you there? It's me. Margaret was for girls only. And this was before the, the gender division of toys and stuff. You know, did you read that article where it was like in 1975, uh, 80% of toys were non genderized. It was like, I remember very much that being true for things like games. Yeah. And but it, there, there would be extremities. You'd have the pink dolly stuff over here and the machine mm-hmm. gun stuff over here. But there was a lot more stuff that was, for lack of a better word, unisex. Yeah, like here's a ball. 
You want to play a game with a ball? If you want to play four square with it or you want to play soccer or you want to play kickball. No, no, no. You got to choose. You can play war ball or nurse ball. (laughs) Exactly. But here's a ball. Yeah. And now every ball has either frozen or G.I. Joe stenciled on it. Mm -hmm. Um, But but in fifth grade, boys did not read, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. And I did because I was curious about it and I like to read books. And, you know, and so all the girl books... Where it was like, here, you know, oh my God, she got her period for the first time. I I read and was like, oh, I don't know what that is, mm-hmm. but that's but I'm I'm happy for her, or am I meant to be sad for her? I don't know. And it didn't, you know that that didn't that knowledge didn't turn me into uh, the world's greatest lover. It turned me into somebody that was that was wondering when I was going to get my period. <laughs> 